Okay, tonight we're going to start a new series called the Baptized in the Holy Spirit series. Uh, the phrase baptized in the Holy Spirit as a verb appears seven times in the New Testament. We'll be looking at that those as part of this series, and we'll be using this series to help people who want to have a deeper filling and a deeper encounter and a deeper regular presence of the Holy Spirit in their life and in the church, in our corporate worship, in our evangelism, in our struggle to overcome sin, in our hunger for the Word, that we want a much greater power of the Holy Spirit released in our life. We're going to start by reading uh, Acts chapter 1, 3 through 8. One of the things that's clear as you study both Testaments is that the Holy Spirit was among God's people in the Old Testament. But the, the Old Testament in the prophecies of Jeremiah and, and so forth, that Ezekiel that promised the coming of the new covenant, uh, the, the expectation was that the new covenant would be, bring some greater encounter and empowering and uh, filling of the Holy Spirit uh, to God's people. And uh, that uh, worked out, as you study uh, the book of Acts and the Gospels, that worked out to basically include a bigger quantity, more more uh, quality of experience with the Holy Spirit, and and more and He was more dispersed among the people. Uh, but the Holy Spirit is definitely active in the Old Testament. So at this point in Acts one three through eight, the context is that after the resurrection, Jesus is preparing to ascend to the Father, and He takes the hundred and twenty followers and instructs them to wait in the upper room in Jerusalem to not go out and start to evangelize and disciple and do the ministry and the mission of God until they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. I think that's still good advice for us today. Acts 1, 3 through 8 says this, To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So let's look at these verses a little bit. Uh, two phrases that are really important here is the phrase, uh, the promise of the Father. You see that phrase in Luke 24. You see it in Acts 2. Uh, this is a, a, uh, a phrase that basically signifies the, the idea that goes back to Jeremiah, the promise of the new covenant, that I will put my spirit within them. I'll write my laws upon their heart. They will not have to teach each other, saying, know the Lord. They will all know me in a gnosko, intimate uh, uh, sense, in a, um, in a spiritual, experiential sense. They will all know me from the least to the greatest. The phrase, the promise of the fathers, used in Luke 11 and so forth, is um, specifically that believers would experience and be filled with a greater encounter of the Holy Spirit uh, as part of the new covenant. Secondly, uh, 
Jesus quotes John the Baptist, and he says, John baptized with the with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's one of the seven places where the the verb baptized in the Holy Spirit is used in the New Testament. Uh, six of those are used in conjunction with John's proclamation that uh, that Jesus would baptize in the Holy Spirit. That That is a significant part of Jesus' ministry. Not only does he want to redeem you, he doesn't just want to regenerate you, you do receive the Holy Spirit when you're regenerated, but baptized in the Holy Spirit, the word baptizo means to submerge or to immerse. And, to, and when Jesus baptizes you in the Holy Spirit, it's a greater empowering, equipping that has all kinds of spillover effects into the Christian life if you uh, follow God's will from there and stay regularly filled and, and close to and walk in proximity to the Holy Spirit from there, the spillover effects are uh, many. In Luke 11, verse 20, Jesus says, If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. By way of introduction in this series, I just want to point out that the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, Romans 14, 17, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is in the Holy Spirit. Where the Holy Spirit is actively working, by nature, he is a spirit, so he is supranatural. Wherever the Spirit of God is working, there will be energy, motivations, attitudes, power, healings, deliverances, things that are beyond what the, what the natural man could do. The flesh profits nothing, but the Spirit can empower. To, and where the Spirit is making himself known, that's where the kingdom is making itself known. Now, 1 Corinthians 12, 1, in the Holman Christian Standard Version, Standard Bible says about matters of the Spirit, brothers, I do not want you to be unaware. So God is saying, I don't want you to be unaware of the Holy Spirit. That's the purpose of this series. We don't want you to be unaware of who the Holy Spirit is. In the New King James Version, it says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. Um, 1 Corinthians 2, 4 through 5, and verse 420, Paul is talking about his ministry in proclaiming the kingdom uh, in throughout the Roman Empire in the key cities of the Roman Empire, such as Ephesus, Corinth, Corinth and so forth. And he tells the Christian Christians at, at Corinth in his first letter to them, uh, it's actually his second letter to them, but it's called 1 Corinthians. The, the first letter was lost to us. But in any way, he says, uh, uh, my speech and my proclamation were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with demonstration of the spirit and power. So God wants not just uh, our faith to be uh, abstract, theoretical, intellectual. Uh, we are not anti. If anybody knows our church, you know that we're very into studying scripture thoroughly, uh, systematic theology, historical theology, uh, biblical theology, and, and Greek, and, and all sorts of things. But however, um, Paul is saying he doesn't want their faith to rest on persuasive words of wisdom, but in a manifestation or a demonstration, a, a bringing into this concrete realm of the power of the Holy Spirit, so that your faith might not be based on, some New American Standard says rest on, man's wisdom, but on God's power. For the kingdom of God is not in talk, but in power. 
Now, when Paul is talking about the demonstration of the Spirit and power, is very similar to when Jesus talks in John chapter 3 that when, uh, when the wind blows where it wishes and you can hear the sound thereof, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. The manifestation of the Spirit is, is just simply this. The Holy Spirit is invisible. Uh, so, but when the Holy Spirit invades our lives, when the Holy Spirit brings God's kingdom to earth, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, he manifests himself in various ways, in redemption, in healing, in casting out demons, in, uh, in various uh, things that God is doing to reconcile the world to, them, to themselves, to himself. So Jesus says again, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, uh, in the Matthew's version says, by the Spirit of God, then know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. So um, I guess our first point we want to make is that the reason we need to re-examine who the Holy Spirit is and, and seek a deeper encounter with him, a more frequent filling with him, to seek to move in his power, is because if you examine the Scriptures— and the manifestations of the Holy Spirit throughout the Gospels and the book of Acts, which are clearly being given to us as a model and as normative, uh, we, in our unbelieving post-Enlightenment culture, uh, struggle with such layers of unbelief that we need an infusion of the Holy Spirit in order to do the purposes of God in de demonstrating his kingdom. Now, the Bible talks about a period of the restoration of all things. And we, here at Grace Christian Fellowship, one of the things we really hunger for and thirst for and seek out is to re-examine the scriptures to understand the patterns as Moses was told uh, to build the tabernacle exactly according to the pattern that was shown him on the mountain. And Paul makes clear in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, that the church is now that tabernacle. We are a dwelling place of God in the spirit. And we must build in every way according to the models and the patterns put into us in the scripture. In Acts 3, 21, uh, they, uh, Peter is talking and he says, uh, he talks about whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke about through the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. So the Bible is talking about a period where everything that was lost by the fall of man will be restored. And, um, and it actually says that, that, that heaven must retain Jesus until that period of restoration of all things. I believe that understanding the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in such a way that we encounter him, that we know how to be filled with him, that we know how to step out in demonstrations of the Spirit and, and see the miraculous, see uh, more anointed worship, more bold proclamation of the gospel, signs and wonders accompanying it, such as deliverance from demons, uh, healings and so forth, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, other gifts of the Spirit. That is absolutely necessary as part of God's restoration of his, of his uh, church. Now, Hebrews 8, 5 says that uh, those 
These serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle, for he said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And that Hebrews 8.5 is actually a quote from Exodus 25, verse 8 and 9, and verse 40, where Moses is told to make the pattern. So what we're trying to do in this series is, is rediscover the pattern of the Holy Spirit's ministry in the life of Christ and in the life of the early church, through the apostles, through the saints in the book of Acts. Uh, often the Holy Spirit worked in powerful ways through guys like Ananias in Acts 9, who was used to heal Paul and, and pray for him to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit. And Ananias was not necessarily, there's no reason to believe he was a, a leader in any way. He was a guy filled with the Holy Spirit, spending time with God, that, that knew the power and the voice of the Holy Spirit, deep enough to, to know that he was hearing clearly and to act on it, even though he was risking his own life to do so. So, basically in this uh, current series, we're going to spend four messages looking at the restoration of the Holy Spirit, which is a necessary thing in terms of the restoration of the church, and God's will that we would work toward, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Wherever the Spirit of God is being manifest, there is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So um, the first message in this series is going to be called The Person and Ministry of the Holy Spirit, and it's uh, also titled The Larger Context. What we're hoping to do in the larger context is look at who is the Holy Spirit and what is, theologically, what is his relationship to the Father and the Son and what does he do in the church and in the earth? Uh, we're going to look at the theological, didactic passages, you might say, about the Holy Spirit's ministry. In part two, we're also going to look at the larger context, but we're going to look at the activity of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to see actual examples, not just the theoretical overview of what, what Jesus said he would do and what the disciples said he would do and so forth, but the actual experience of what the Holy Spirit did, and we're going to look at his work in the Old Testament briefly. We're going to look at his work in the life of Christ briefly. We're going to look at his uh, work in the early church briefly. And we're going to look at his work in the first five or so centuries of the church a little bit, just touch on it, his work throughout the Middle Ages, and his work uh, after the Reformation and in, uh, and in the 19th and 20th century. Just We're, we're not going to spend much time on that, but we're just going to demonstrate that the, there is an idea out there called cessationism that basically says the Holy Spirit stopped working after the apostles. Uh, that can neither be uh, defended from Scripture, although they do use one verse that they totally wrestle out of context. No, no important idea is ever based on one verse, by the way. They, uh, but and especially when it's wrestled totally out of its context. But more importantly, uh, that idea can't be defended from church history. God, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Bible says no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And Paul specifically says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, that that's how you can know that something is the Holy Spirit if it bears witness to the Lordship of Jesus. The, there's been healings, prophecies, casting out of demons and various activities of the Holy Spirit in, in all sorts of movements of the church throughout the centuries, uh, lifting up and bringing people to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So let's, uh, 
let's get into the first part of this. Oh, I, I, I forgot to cover um, chapters three and four. Chapter three is going to be called Five Biblical Patterns, Five Biblical Examples. And what chapter three does is it takes us through five encounters with people being filled with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts to see what, uh, what patterns and models emerge there in terms of what should be expected when someone has the Holy Spirit poured out on them. Um, and then finally, we're going to look at sharing and, and uh, imparting and ministering and receiving the baptism in the Holy Spirit um, for those who want to help others receive it or for those who want to receive it for themselves. It's going to be some practicals about uh, why it's God's promise for every believer. It's no mark of maturity, uh, but it's a, a tool to help us grow, and we're going to look at that. So tonight, we're going to uh, focus in on the first chapter one, the larger context, the person of the Holy Spirit, and the theoretical overview of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So let's start with the person of the Holy Spirit. One of the most important things is that the Holy Spirit is God. Um, he is often the forgotten member of the Trinity. There's a popular book right now by a guy named Francis Chan called uh, The Forgotten God, which is about the church's neglect of the Holy Spirit. There is a reason that uh, the Bible makes it very clear that there are three enemies of the, of the church and of you, uh, three, three enemies that we all face uh, in terms of it, growing in the kingdom of God, getting to know our King Jesus, uh, walking right, rightly with God. We have our old sin nature, often called the flesh or the Adamic nature. We have the world system and its ideas and its philosophies and its values. And there is a demonic and a satanic kingdom. All of these want to keep you away from experiencing and focusing on the person of God, the Holy Spirit. That will become obvious as we get into his ministry, because God the Father and God the Son are actually in heaven. Now, they're not up there twiddling their thumbs. God is not inactive. He's not sitting. Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand, and they are not, like, we are not deist. We don't believe that Jesus is yawning and looking out over the earth with nothing to do. They're not diverted playing ping pong or any other, I don't mean to be blasphemous or anything, but there's kind of this idea that God is not doing much. But God the Father and God the Son are doing a great deal. They're working all things to sum up all things in Christ, as the scriptures say. They're working all things according to their eternal predestined plan. And God is unfolding his redemptive purposes, but he does it by the person in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So there is actually lots of spiritual warfare. Part of the whole pseudo-scientific, uh, anti-supernatural, skeptical mindset of the Enlightenment is, is, that has taken over the world system in nation after nation that has been affected by Western humanism. Even communist China has been totally captured by Western humanistic ideas. That's what communism is a humanism, Karl Marx said. That whole... That whole world system is trying to get you not to experience, not to encounter, not to walk in the power and the holiness of the Holy Spirit. They, he doesn't want you to walk in the fruit of the Spirit. He doesn't want you to walk in the gifts of the Spirit. He doesn't want you to think about the Holy Spirit. He's actually 
less, uh, as as we talk about Satan and the demonic kingdoms, they are actually less threatened by us talking about the Father and the Son because the Father and the Son do what they do by the Holy Spirit representing them, as we'll see tonight. So our first point about the person of the Holy Spirit is that he is a full member of the Trinity. Uh, There are three persons in one, one being. Three persons, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the Father and the Son use the Holy Spirit as their representative agent to bring their kingdom. The kingdom of God is not mean and drink, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy. It's in the Holy Spirit. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He is God. He has uh, all the attributes of God. Secondly, he's a person. You often hear, sometimes among Charismatics or Pentecostals or other types of Christians, you'll actually hear the Holy Spirit uh, or the anointing talked about as it. He is not an it. Uh, He is a person. He's not an energy force. He has all the aspects of personality. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Grief is indicative of a personal attribute. So in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, don't quench the Holy Spirit. We can actually have attitudes, motivations, behaviors, uh, mindsets that are grieving to the Holy Spirit. And what the Bible is encouraging us to do is know the Holy Spirit, know him theoretically and intellectually, and know and know him, know him experientially, know him both in, in the Greek, it would be gnosis and gnosko, uh, know him experientially and intimately, and know him theologically and, and biblically. So uh, God wants us to, to, to order our lives in such a way that our character and that our person doesn't grieve the Holy Spirit, but allows the Holy Spirit to work through us both to bring his fruit and the, and the character of Christ and the nine fruits of the Holy Spirit listed in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, and to bring the nine gifts of the Spirit through us as listed in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 2 through 5 or so. And um, so um, the, um, the next point I want to say about the person of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit allows us to take grace further. God works all things by his word through his church, but in the anointing of his Holy Spirit. He is called in Hebrews 20, 10, 29, the spirit of grace. And one of the things that, that has become a false dichotomy since uh, the Civil War in, in Christianity is there are those who believe that you should have, uh, that are word-oriented and want nothing to do with experience, power, joy, spiritual gifts, Etc., and there are others that want everything to do with joy, w- intense worship, spiritual gifts, casting out demons, or what have you, but want nothing to do with serious biblical studies or theology and so forth. And that is scripturally a very false dichotomy. The, the scriptures recommend highly both of those. Now, I'm going to skip through the next part on your outline. You can do look at that yourself. But there are various word pictures of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. He's depicted as fire, as a cloud, and so forth. 
but uh, I've listed three of them here that you can study out. Three of my favorites, he's depicted as a, a dove, he's depicted as a servant, and he's depicted as an advocate. Uh, the word parakletos, advocate, means one called alongside to help, and Jesus called, and it's often translated as helper or comforter. It's a tough word to translate if you just take five or six of the best dynamic equivalents English translations, you'll get different words such as advocate, comforter, helper, and so forth. Um, so those are some of the word pictures of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and let's get into then, therefore, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So if you're following on your outline, we're about three quarters of the way down the first page at Roman numeral three, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now the word ministry is an important word uh, in the Greek, it's diakonai. It means that we get the word deacon from that, but it means a servant, a table waiter. And um, the Holy Spirit really is a minister, a servant on behalf of the Father and the Son. Of course, the Holy Spirit ministers to us and through us. But first, you know, we've become very man-centered in our thinking in Christianity in, in modern times. It's not first and foremost what the Holy Spirit does for us or even through us. It's first and foremost that the Holy Spirit does these things on behalf of the Father and the Son and for their eternal redemptive purposes to make, to uh, call a bride and sanctify a bride for his Son, to equip an army. Uh, there's all kinds of metaphors for the church in the scripture uh, that the, script, the church is to be more than conquerors, showing forth the kingdom of God in every sphere and realm of human endeavor, in every city, in every nation, among every tribe, in every tongue. And God the Father and Son do all of that by the Holy Spirit. So let's look at seven aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, these are not exhaustive. There are more aspects, but these are representative of what the Holy Spirit's ministry is. First and foremost, he's given to bear witness of the risen and glorified Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus was about to ascend to the Father, he told them to wait in Jerusalem. We already read that passage in Acts 1, 3 through 8. There's a parallel passage if you want to look for it toward the end of Luke 24. He told them to wait in Jerusalem until he poured out the Holy Spirit. Pentecost is actually the great sign that Jesus is not only has not only died to atone for our sins, it's not just that he was buried, it's not just that he rose again. We sometimes underestimate in Western Christianity what the Eastern Christians understand. He ascended, and he sat down at the Father's right hand, and he currently reigns. His reign is present. His kingdom is among us. And so um, the Holy Spirit came to represent the glorified, risen, coronated, living Christ. Now, in the Old Testament and the New, when God anoints someone, he pours the Holy Spirit on them. Look at the anointing of the priest, such as Aaron, uh, look at Psalm 131. It's like the dew coming down on, and the oil coming down on Aaron's robe and so forth. When uh, Samuel anointed Saul, when he anointed David, he poured the oil of the Holy Spirit on them. 
oil symbolic of and representative of the Holy Spirit, and it spilled down from their head, down their robes, and into the, to the earth below. Pentecost is simply that. When Jesus took his place at the Father's right hand, the Father poured the anointing oil of the Holy Spirit. That's why the Holy Spirit first proceeds from the Father and then through the Son into the earth. And he, as, it, as God the Father anointed Jesus as Lord of lords, king of those who would be kings, as the omnipotent, potentate, almighty, who upholds all things by the word of his power, the spillover of that anointing ceremony came into the earth, and it's still pouring, and it's called Pentecost. The Holy Spirit, whenever he is poured into us, whenever he is made manifest in worship or in proclaiming the gospel or in our prayer closets, whenever he is poured out, he is poured out as, as the anointing oil that's pouring onto King Jesus that's continuing to flow. When God does things, he doesn't stop. He says, let there be light, and light is still expanding throughout the whole universe. The universe is still unfolding because God didn't just say, let there be a little light or let there be light stop. He said, let there be light, which really means light, 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 light uh, ad infinitum forever. When God anointed Jesus as king of kings, the Holy Spirit was poured on Jesus and he came into the earth in a whole new dimension. The Holy Spirit is clearly present among God's people in the Old Testament. Uh, however, as, as he was poured out at Pentecost, he's poured out as the overflow of the coronation of King Jesus. Now that's all to say that the first ministry of the Holy Spirit, if we get more filled with the Holy Spirit, if we encounter the Holy Spirit, if we enjoy his manifest presence, we will love Jesus as Lord more and more, and we will see him in a bigger light. If you get the Holy Spirit, you will see Jesus, the implications of his lordship greater. You will be less fearful and retreatistic and have less uh, focus on the expansion of darkness and the growth of sin and more, uh, more focus on the expansion of his kingdom and the greater work of his redemption. So let's uh, back that up with a few scripture verses. Just, uh, you know, that's the bigger theme. He's given to bear witness of the risen, ascended, and glorified Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, which we've quoted a few times. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the encountering and the overflow of the Holy Spirit. John 15, 26, when the helper, that's that Greek word parakletos or advocate or comforter in some translations, when the helper, comforter comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So again, the Father sends the Holy Spirit. Jesus in this verse says, I will send him to you from the Father. Um, And we'll talk at the end of this a little bit about uh, a controversy there. Well, I'll go ahead and address that now. There's a controversy between Eastern and Western Christians called the philolically clause, whether the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father or whether he proceeds from the Father and the Son. 
Uh, that really depends on what the word proceed means. We really kind of miss that in our English. So I don't care to enter into that fight. I, there are some good arguments for him proceeding fir first from the Father. As we said, the Father is the one who poured the Holy Spirit on Jesus. But Jesus said, I will come to you. I won't leave you as orphans and so forth. And, and he says he'll send the Father. So all we care to understand is that the Father sends the Holy Spirit, the Son sends the Holy Spirit. They, they are always one. They always act in harmony. They always There's no division between them. And they are sending the Holy Spirit to do their will. So, um, again, the, the most important point is that the helper who Jesus sends from the Father will, is the Spirit of truth. He proceeds from the Father and he testifies about Jesus. He bears witness about Jesus. John 7, 39, it says, But this he spoke of the Holy Spirit, or concerning the Spirit, uh, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not get, yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. There's that, that the, the Pentecost was our share in the anointing oil of King Jesus, and Pentecost is always continuing to pour. John 16, 7 and 14 says, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I will go away, for I do not go away. The, the helper, or again, the advocate, the paracletos, the comforter will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Verse 14, he says, he will glorify me. The second ministry or service or ongoing work of the Holy Spirit on behalf of the Father and the Son is that he convicts the world and the word there, convict, can also be translated convinces the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. John 16, 8 through 11, Jesus says, And he, when he comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, will convince or convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Uh, sin, the essence of sin, as Paul brings out in Romans, is to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. There's none who seeks for God. They do not want to turn to Jesus. They do not want to believe in Jesus. Our sin, we, we, we have a tendency in modern times to reduce sin to shallow criteria of sins, and sins are a horrible thing. But our sins proceed out of our sin, of our not wanting to submit to the Lordship of Christ, to know the Lord, to honor him as God, to, and so forth. And the Holy Spirit convinces and convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's how a person begins to turn to Christ, and that's how a person continues to turn to Christ. Uh, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. So we, you know, Jesus said the world hates me because I testify to it that its deeds are evil. And by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit continues to the ministry of Christ, testifying to the world that its deeds are evil, and the world still hates Christ. As a result, until God changes our hearts in repentance and conversion and, and causes us to become lovers of God and seekers of God in the new birth. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So he convicts or convinces us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Thirdly, he's given to lead us into worship. I particularly love this uh, about if you go back and study the movements of God in the 19th century, such as the Christian Missionary Alliance and Nazarene churches and the birth of them, wherever there's kind of a quickening and an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, you will always see very 
uh, heightened in, in enthusiastic worship. Uh, that is, that's hand in glove. That's, uh, that's the seed and the fruit of whatever, however, whatever analogy you want to see. He, the Holy Spirit leads us into a deeper worship of the Lord Jesus and of the Father. Uh, John 4, 23 says, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worship. God is spirit. God, the Holy Spirit is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The Holy Spirit comes to, to cause us to worship the Father and the Son and to worship him in spirit and in reality. Fourthly, given to lead and guide the church into all truth. In other words, he came to be a pioneer of restoration. God is in the business of restoring all things that were damaged by the fall, and he does that by the Holy Spirit working through the church as he leads us into truth. We, do, we have all the truth in the sense that we have it in Christ among us and in the scriptures that bear witness of Christ. But we don't have all the truth in the sense of, of walking in it, ex understanding it, experiencing it. The Holy Spirit is always leading and guiding us into all the truth. John 16, 12, 13, I have many more things to say to you. Now that's kind of, I love that because they, you know, Jesus had discipled them three and a half years. Most of his disciples grew up in Galilee, which means they would have memorized the whole first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, what we call the Pentateuch today. Uh, the law, they would have memorized large portions of the prophets and, and the wisdom literature. And they were just discipled by Jesus for three and a half years. And he says, you don't, have, you don't understand it all yet. I have many more things to say, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. Now there are some who only assigned to this part of what it means that he would continue to pour out revelation and understanding on the apostles so they would understand better who Christ was. It's clear from the question we read in Acts 1, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel, that they still didn't get a whole lot about who Jesus is, as much of the modern church does not. Nevertheless, it wasn't just to give us the New Testament and then he stops. That, that is so unbiblical. That is not in the nature of let there be light. Uh, it, the, Jesus said that a time will come when the dead will hear my voice and the time now is and, and those who hear will live. Jesus is still speaking by the Holy Spirit and dead spirits are always still being quickened. And he's, the Holy Spirit is always doing his ministry of leading and restoring the ch church to all truth. An important part of that was the truth that he deposited in the apostles, in the book of Acts, in the New Testament, but it, uh, it is as everything in God is unfolding and ongoing until all things are summed up and the kingdom is delivered unto the Father uh, unto, through Christ. First Corinthians 15 talks about God is still moving. So, he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he hears from the Father and the Son what their counsels are, and that's what he discloses to us. If, if you were to say the Holy Spirit doesn't do that anymore, you would have to become a deist, which much of the church is sort of an sort of impractical deist, saying, you know, as if the Father and the Son aren't doing anything anymore. 
They are always working all things according to their predestined plan. They are always speaking. God is active. He is alive. He is in the, the, the redemption business by the power of the Holy Spirit. A um, couple sub points on this given and leading to guide the church in all truth. He illuminates or opens scripture to us in an ongoing way. First Corinthians 2.27, I'm sorry, 1 John 2.27 says, As for you, the anointing which you received from him, that is from Christ by the Holy Spirit, uh, you have no need for anyone to teach you, but his, his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. And just that as has taught you, you abide in him. Now, this is not saying we don't need the, the great gift of shepherds and teachers in the church, but... I can tell you firsthand, if the Holy Spirit doesn't anoint what, you're, what we're saying, if he doesn't open hearts, if he doesn't open minds, what we're saying is dead letter, it's worthless. Only what God the Holy Spirit is actually doing through us has power, life, and ongoing implications. 2 Peter 1.20 says, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So the Holy Spirit continues to play a role in holy men interpreting the Scriptures. Proverbs 1.23, Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour my Spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. The Holy Spirit illuminates and opens the scriptures to us. Uh, another subpoint under the fact that the Holy Spirit is given to lead and guide us into the truth, subpoint B there on your outline, is that he's the spirit of a prophetic pioneer. Psalm 84 says, How blessed is the man whose strength is in you and whose heart is the highways to Zion. Paul says, We walk by faith, not by sight. Uh, sometimes we look at our circumstances in our church and our jobs and, and uh, the spiritual warfare we're going through, and we walk by sight instead of by faith. But we need to, to walk by whatever the Holy Spirit is doing. All right, fifth ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the power of God. Uh, the Greek word for power is dunamis, which we get dynamic from or dynamite. Where the Holy Spirit is, there must, by definition, be redemptive, supernatural gifts. 1 Corinthians 2 talks 1 through 16. You should read the whole chapter. We're not going to read it here for time's sake. But it says the natural-minded man can't receive the things of the Spirit of God. God does everything he does by the Holy Spirit. Uh, in the Spirit, he searches all things, even the depths of God and so forth. Wherever the Holy Spirit is made known, wherever he is made manifest, Wherever his presence is, there is by, by definition supernatural anointing. And that will include gifts of the Spirit, fruits of the Spirit, signs, wonders, casting out of demons, healing, salvation. There is no biblical basis uh, to expect anything less. Now, that happens a lot less in post-enlightenment Western humanistic cultures. But in most cultures, such as in Africa, that have not been affected by that, the Holy Spirit moves in power, and we can, by God's grace, posture our hearts and journey with the Holy Spirit to rise above that. It is normative for the Holy Spirit to bear witness to the gospel by signs and wonders. It's by definition. If his, if his presence is being made known, he is a spirit. He is supernatural. He, he works in and through the natural ability by being supernatural. 
The Holy Spirit is a spirit, and thus he is supernatural. Uh, Acts 10.38 says, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. So if we're anointed with the Holy Spirit and power, the rest of this should apply to us as well. And how he went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power, dunamis, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And not that you shall become, uh, not that you shall witness, but he will actually make us be becoming witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Zechariah 4, 6 says, uh, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord of Tisrebel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. I have a Bible study with a good dear friend that's a Methodist pastor every week. And he was actually talking to me about some churches that he's friendly with and so forth that have such a great church growth plan and church growth programs uh, and so much momentum therein and money behind it and so forth that uh, they don't even feel they need the Holy Spirit <laughs> particularly. I, I, or at least um, they wouldn't say that, I'm sure. But, but you know, the, the bottom line is how desperate are we for the Holy Spirit to be doing what we're doing. Only that which is born of God uh, lasts forever. And uh, I, I don't want to grow by might or power in the sense of human resources, marketing methods, uh, all that. I want to grow by demonstration of the Spirit of God in power, as Zechariah is talking about. Romans 5, 15, 19, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout, as far as Illyricum, I have preached the gospel of Christ. Uh, there's a list of other helpful scriptures on your outline. Number six, then the sixth ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given as the representative of the Father and the Son, we've talked about that, to implement their counsels, build the church, and fulfill God's ultimate kingdom purposes. His ministry is a continuance of theirs. See again, John 16, 7, and 13, 14, and, and so forth, that, uh, all the scriptures we've read so forth. The Holy Spirit is the representative of the Father and the Son to implement their counsels, build his church, and fulfill God's ultimate kingdom purposes. His ministry is the continuance of their ministry. The Holy Spirit was poured out in Acts to continue the ministry of Jesus and to continue to bear witness to Jesus. Seventhly, the Holy Spirit is God's primary active agent in the church and beyond. The church, guided, taught, and empowered by the Holy Spirit, is God's active agent in bringing the kingdom of God to, to earth. He's the helper, the intercessor, the intercessor. He bears witness. All the, he's the liberator. Now, some of these seven points have a great deal of overlap with each other. Uh, my point in in uh, saying them is to make sure that we understand why we need to re-examine. A great number of things, if if we don't see the Holy Spirit manifested like we read in Acts 10.38, Jesus was anointed of the Holy Spirit and went about doing good and healing those who are oppressed by the devil. How many people can we say that we that we proclaimed the gospel to? Did he, uh, how many did we even proclaim the gospel to? But did he bear witness with signs and with wonders? Uh, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, know the kingdom of God is among you. Did it was it, is, was it the Holy Spirit's anointing that was teaching them, or our slick presentation and so forth? So uh, again, what we uh, need to see here 
is that if we really had, you know, you often hear, well, I got all of the Holy Spirit there was when I was converted. I believe you got the Holy Spirit when you were converted. I don't know anyone who got all the Holy Spirit that there is. If, if, if so, let's see your ministry look like Jesus. Let's see it look like Paul. Let's see it look like Ananias and so forth. Let's see it look like Philip in the book of Acts. uh, My conclusion, the church needs to recapture all the manifest presence and dynamic ministries and gifts of the Holy Spirit to enable us to follow after and continue the ongoing, never-changing ministry of Jesus. Uh, Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. One last concluding thought. I just encourage you to be desperate for these things. There used to be kind of a division between cessationists who don't believe that God still does anything by his Holy Spirit and those who that believe God's Holy Spirit is ongoing and present and active, which is, of course, the biblical view. However, what has sort of developed is sort of a middle ground where we, where we conceptually say God can still do healings and he can still deliver and he can still do things by the Holy Spirit if he wants. We just don't want to focus much on that. We don't want to pursue that. Um, and, and we certainly don't see much of that. And if God wants to, he can. Well, that's a little bit like saying, if God wants me to read my Bible, then he can read it for me. The Bible tells us to pursue earnestly, which is a very aggressive word. In other words, be desperate for spiritual gifts. One of the things that I'm asking us to consider in this series, one of the things I'm asking anyone who hears this series, consider that the Bible says pursue earnestly the spirit spiritual gifts, uh, especially prophecy, et cetera. But, but the truth of the matter is, if our ex- Christian experience is not normative to see healings, prophecies, tongues and interpretation, casting out of demons, discernment of spirits, uh, various gifts of the Spirit and gar- various fruits of the Spirit, boldness and witnessing, witnessing that God bears witness to and that God bears fruit in. If we don't see that, then we need to be desperate for it. We need to do fast. We need to study. We need to uh, overcome petty sins. We need to do whatever it takes uh, to humble ourselves. Like in, in Joel, call a fast, call the elders, call all the people. We need the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And if it doesn't look like the, the gospels in the book of Acts, then we need him more. Amen.